This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. And this is the podcast. I don't know what to say after that ever. (laughs) It is the podcast. That's correct. Maybe next time we'll change it up. Maybe next time we'll do it in the opposite direction. Although, I don't know, I've become very used to the way that we say Lauren and Alicia and I feel like... It's not. We used to change it up though. Yeah, we did, but we've fallen into this kind of trap and I don't Stuck feel like Alicia Dish. and Lauren has the same ring as Lauren and Alicia, you know, like it's like Laverne and Shirley. You kind of have sure. to say it in one kind of. Yeah. The more you say it in a certain order, the more you get used to it. That's correct. Well, maybe we'll yeah. change it up and we'll try Alicia and Lauren the next time around. In the meantime. <laughs> In the meantime, welcome once again. We're somewhere in the middle of the year. How did that happen? <laughs> it's the 20... Well, okay, we're recording on the 25th of June, which I just realised is halfway between two Christmases. Amazing. Yeah, just the, amazing. The year's gone so quickly, I think, because there's been no markers to delineate time. It's just a... <laughs> you know, it was March... There were so many things that happened. It was, you know, January, I was overseas. February, it was summertime. It was fringe. We were out. We were doing things. Then it was March and then it was the end of the world. And yeah. then we didn't leave the house ever That's again. Right. Well, yeah. I did. I'm back at work. But, you know, time yeah. stopped. That's right. The apocalypse happened and then we've just been living in the same month, yeah. the same week, the same day over and over again. Yeah. But here we are <laughs> to do a new podcast, a new episode. So time keeps marching forward in some kind of, I don't know, measurable way, obviously, if you want to measure it in podcasts. <laughs> it is it's, one method. <laughs> is that a legitimate measurement of time? Probably. Yeah. Not. It's yeah. irregular. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And today we are going to be, well, look. Let's be honest. We're going to be looking at a woman whose life, <laughs> as always, still has a lot of resonances today. I mean, uh, yes, of course. I mean, she's a much more recent figure and she only mm. passed away mm. in 2015. So a much, much more recent figure than a lot of the women that we've been looking at recently. A contemporary Yes, woman. that's right. Rather contemporary. One might say. We haven't done one for a long time. No, we haven't. Well, I mean, most of her activist work was in the early and mid-20th centuries. Oh, well, Mm. I should say through to the late 20th century as well. But it does bring us to the most recent times. Mm. And the woman we are talking about today is a woman called Faith Bandler. Now, I don't feel like she would be a household name to many of our listeners, perhaps those of ours who are here in Australia as we are. But even then... Maybe not as many people know her as should know her. Do you no. want to give us just the – what is your, like, flashcard version of Faith Banner? Like, what's well, your banner 
ad of Faith Bandler. Banner ad. What's my elevator pitch for Faith Bandler? Yeah, what's your elevator pitch? Uh, <laughs> well, so Faith Bandler, she was an activist for human rights, basically, and she was hugely influential in the movement here in Australia in the mid-20th century toward the 1967 referendum, mm. which did help to change some things for Indigenous Australians. Faith Bandler was not herself an Indigenous Australian, but I will be referring to and mentioning the names of some Indigenous Australians who are deceased throughout this episode. Mm -hmm. So just flagging that now for any Indigenous listeners that we might have joining us today. And I've been dropping hints about this woman in many of our other episodes this season, Mm. to be honest. Because... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you have because you've been kind of planning her all season really, haven't you? Yeah, I have. And, of course, because so many of the things that we've been talking about relate back to the mm. sort of activism that she was heavily involved in. So I thought it was just time to do the damn episode about it. Yes, <laughs> it really is. It's like, yeah, it's perfect timing really actually. <laughs> yeah, and also because of some recent comments by our Prime Minister, the old ScoMo, <sighs> <laughs> who did look, go back and apologise and, you know, he did acknowledge that what he said was a crock of shit. Not in those exact I words. actually, I did not know that. I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did apologise for it. Okay. <laughs> because recently our Prime Minister did sort of shove his foot in his mouth in saying that here in Australia uh, we never really had a slave trade, which is, yeah, of course. which is a crock of shit. A crock of it's shit. No, but, like, no, more than that, it, it is actually a part of a very serious kind of denial of history that we have here in Australia that is quite insidious and part of, I mean, we have what is called the history wars in Australia and it's this sort of cultural war between the way that Australia likes to think of itself and the reality of what actually happened. And, of course, we can't ever really come to a point of reconciliation without truly, truly reckoning with this history. And having a Prime Minister so blithely overlook such a stain on our country's history mm. is really awful. Yeah, and of course, I mean, we we had a few different slave trades in this country, really, and mm. I think that, you know, this muddies the waters of how we think about our history of slavery in this country as well because I think that there are different and often competing narratives to this story, mm. I think. So this is part and parcel of today's story. And to start with Bandler's story, we're going to start with her parentage. So going to take us back to the late 1800s. Her mother, Ida, was of Scottish Indian heritage and she was born in Brisbane but lived most of her life in New South Wales. And we just should clarify when you say Indian, we actually do mean South Asian. Yes, as in from (laughs) India. Correct. That's correct, yes. And her father, on the other hand, was from an island called Abram, which is part of what is current day Vanuatu. And for those who don't know or don't have a map in front of them, Vanuatu, of course, is basically a nation of islands in the South Pacific Ocean. Mm. So now her father fell victim to exactly one of these slave trades that I was talking about. So... One of the trades, of course, in human life here in Australia involved our First Nation peoples and thousands and thousands and thousands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were literally chained together and marched off to work for white landowners and families. And this is one very dark part of our slavery trade here in this country. 
But it's not the only trade in human Mm. lives that's part of our colonial history because we also had a pretty massive trade in what was known as blackbirding. This was a term which, when applied in an Australian context, referred to the slave trade in South Sea Islanders Mm. or Pacific Islanders. And this is when basically they were kidnapped from their homes, weren't they, like kidnapped by the colonists and brought to Australia to work in what was, I guess, just called unpaid labour or very, very, very poorly paid labour, which is why they don't call it slavery because they're like, oh, it was labour, which is the same thing, of course. Yeah. It was a slave trade. It It was was. definitively a slave trade. And these people were collected from many of the South Pacific island nations that surround Australia. And it fed workers basically into the booming sugarcane fields Mm -hmm. of Queensland back in Australia. And I suppose this is part and parcel of that history wars that you were talking about, because, you know, many people who fell victim to this trade were actually coerced into coming to Australia Mm. with false promises of payment and Mm -hmm. conditions and jobs, which, of course, never eventuated when they arrived here, while others were simply fucking kidnapped. They were simply loaded onto ships against their will and brought to Australia. And Bandler's father was one of the latter of those Mm -hmm. groups who was kidnapped into the trade in 1883 when he was only 13 years old. (gasps) Oh, my God. I know. 13 years old. And he was put into work in the cane fields of Mackay in far north Queensland. So this trade... I mean, this is why it's ridiculous to try to sort of deny that this mm. trade ever existed. There because are estimates literally did <laughs> because of it literally, of course, it did. And there are estimates that somewhere over sixty thousand people <gasps> were kidnapped or coerced into oh slave God. trade. Exactly, and this is just blackbirding. This yes, is not this even is not counting. To- no, not talking about the indigenous people yeah. who were actually. Yeah involved in the slave trade here in this country this is just talking solely about blackbirding which is that term for collecting people from other island Mm -hmm. nations this is a term that also was applied to uh, many other nations around the world as well that did the same thing that picked out people Mm. from surrounding island nations and brought them back to the mainland to work as slaves so 60,000 people kidnapped or coerced into coming from the islands from the 19th century through to the early years of the 20th century. And that number most likely only really correlates to the men who were brought over, oh, right? Shit. So, so they didn't even count the women or children. No. Or children, I assume, as yeah, well. Exactly. Well, because I mean her father was a child. Yeah. So women and children wouldn't have been counted into that trade, most likely. And because her father was only a child, he probably wasn't counted in that number counted, yeah so who knows exactly how what many the real people number is yeah exactly probably tens of thousands of more people actually wow. is closer to the correct estimation so when the trade did finally end it did end because of changing public values and because mm-hmm. of that shifting idea around slavery and what was acceptable and, you know, human rights basically was becoming Mm. part of this kind of new culture of Mm -hmm. enlightenment, I suppose. Well, not enlightenment in terms of the enlightenment, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean. mean. It was actually coming to the fore in this kind of public 
zeitgeist, I suppose. Yeah. But what it meant was that when the trade itself actually ended, it led to mass deportations, right? Of people yeah, right. back uh-huh. to where they had originally people who come are going from. back with nothing and to homes that aren't their homes anymore and Precisely. to things that aren't there anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how is that actually a solution? You know, yeah. it's essentially oh, all right. Well, we're and done especially with if you this now, is so. generations later, then this is potentially deporting people who have been born and raised yep. in Australia and don't actually see somewhere like Vanuatu as their home. That's right. And have no connection there apart from their lineage. Obviously, that's a connection, but you know, no tangible. Yeah, physical, no direct, like, no personal direct family. Connection. That's right. Yep. You know, so. This was in no way a solution. And, of course, there was no compensation for the time that they had been working. There was no home offered to them or choice offered to them. But Bandler's father wasn't deported because after 14 years of working in the cane fields, he'd actually managed to escape. And he had... Yeah, exactly. And so this was before the trade ended, obviously. And he'd headed south over the border into New South Wales. Here he changed his name and he began his own banana plantation near a town called Mawilumba, which is pretty much really only just over the border from Queensland. Mm -hmm. And it was also here that he met and married Ida. So because Ida, as I mentioned, was of Scottish Indian descent and she was Australian, workers who'd married with Australians Mm, were allowed mm -hmm. to stay after the trade was abolished. And so her father was not deported today. Exactly, for this exact reason. So Ida and Bandler's father start up their life together. So little Faith Bandler is born in September of 1918 She was their sixth child by the time she came along. And when she was very young, she remembered her father preaching because this was actually one of his interests, right? So he wasn't a formally ordained preacher or priest, but he was more of sort of a lay (laughs) preacher. He just simply enjoyed spreading the word of God. It was a hobby. It was a hobby. He just really loved God. (laughs) He did. He just really liked it. you couldn't shut him up about it. (laughs) But sadly, actually, he died when she was only still very, very young. So she only sort of had this kind of memory of her father, but also her memories of him telling her and her siblings the story about his younger days and the story about being kidnapped away from his home. Because obviously this was something that, you know, generational, you want to make sure that this story carries on and that everybody knows and that this knowledge. Like, I mean, that's similar to Ida B. Wells last week, whose own mother, you know, she grew up with her mother's stories of what it was like living, you know, being separated from her siblings and, you know, all of that. It is because that's that oral history that's so super important in keeping that tradition alive and the, the family knowledge. And of course, you know, as with Ida and as with so many other individuals that we've seen with similar sorts of stories, this makes for pretty fucking formative impressions, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, about justice and about inequality and about human rights. So, of course, these stories from her father fed directly into her sense of justice. And her mother also um, worked as a nurse, which also sort of instilled in her values of caring and compassion, even though, you know, that's a broad thing to say about nurses because I've met some <laughs> nurses who were bitches. But, hey. Oh, <laughs> the last nurse that I had, she held my hand while I was in the chair getting some stuff done. 
Oh, that's very <laughs> She's nice. very lovely and caring. <laughs> no, I kid, I kid. Of course I kid. No, no, no. no nurses, <laughs> nurses are, are great. great people. Um, <laughs> so, of course, yeah, so her mother was, a, you know, another very influential sort of factor in the person that she was growing to become. So she went to school in Mwilumba, but, of course, it was a country town, an Australian country town <laughs> in the uh, early 20th century. Mm. So, and she's the yes, she's yes. not white. That's decidedly not white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, of course, she was the target of some racism and exclusion from a lot of school mm. life, a lot of town life. And so, she did experience firsthand the discrimination that, of course, so many other people experienced and still experience today. But, of course, it didn't deter her from pursuing her education. And she went on to complete her high schooling. And then after school, she went on to complete a dressmaker's apprenticeship. And attracted by the idea of the big city lights, she decided to move to Sydney. And so when would this have been? Like the 30s yes. maybe? So this, yeah. So yes. Yeah, so this is the 30s now. And this is also sort of heading towards the war too. So mm. she moved to Sydney. She found work as a milliner's assistant. And she continued to extend her education by attending night school as well. Wow. So we are moving into the war now. We're moving into the Second World War. And of course, what this meant was that, well, it meant a lot of things, but yeah. it also <laughs> meant it did. Famously. Famously. <laughs> no, hell of a lot of Famously things. Famously quite a hectic time. <laughs> Very An hectic unpleasant time. time for everybody. Yeah. But one of the key things it meant was that Australian men were off overseas fighting. And, of course, this left a huge gap in many of mm. the professions that men previously yes. held. So Time to roll up everyone's sleeves and get those ladies in those jobs that they exactly. never want to give back again because why should they? <laughs> exactly. So we got some Rosie the Riveters going on yeah. at the moment. So Bandler decided to join what was known as the Australian Women's Land Army. Now, the Australian Women's Land Army, their key role was to fill the gaps in rural labour that had been left by the men who'd gone off to fight. So the Land Army sounds exciting, but then they're actually just like, we're putting you on a farm and it's your job to (laughs) take care of this patch of dirt until the men come back. Don't ruin it. It's essentially what we get European backpackers to do now. <laughs> it's basically well, not at that. the moment. They all went home. <laughs> they did. They all went home. But it's normally what we'd get European backpackers to do for yep. us. So they were sent out, yeah, on placement to work on farms, milking cows, collecting fruit and vegetables, all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, it's hard fucking work, right? Of course, it's yeah. It totally work. is. Ask any European backpacker. <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. And the women, of course, were paid substantially less than the men had been getting Mm -hmm. paid to do the same work, of course. And they were paid far less than their male overseers who were still around, of of course. course. But it was the kind of work that despite Bandler's sort of drive to help and to do something useful it didn't really suit her. She wasn't filling her heart with a sense no. of achievement and purpose and belonging. No. Which no. are very important things if you want to have a good time at work, I guess. But on that, though, she did really enjoy the time spent making friends and just like working, hanging out yeah yeah and working having a goss with, while you're picking the apples and the oranges yeah that's right and also they lived a camp life while they were doing this right. kind of work so 
she really did enjoy the camaraderie of the camp life with the women. But she didn't enjoy the actual work itself. So the, the hot sun and the flies and the snakes in the grass. No, nobody really enjoys that. So she went on to do this for a good three years. She stuck it out. But, of course, when the war ended and the men came back, the women all got the boot. Booted. Simple as that. And it's still an interesting part of our war history that's had very little sort of public acknowledgement attributed to it. In fact, I don't think most people would even know that this Australian Women's Land Army had ever existed. Well, you know, it's interesting because it wasn't Australia like considered the like the breadbasket of the world. Like Australian agriculture was super important during World War Two because we exported so much food, particularly to like Europe and the UK, because they couldn't, you know, they were well, had many more barriers that stopped them from being able to farm their own food. So our food went to them. But the women who were keeping this nation mm. running and keeping that mm. breadbasket supplied and were not never just really Acknowledge yeah. for that. But that's the thing. It's not just Australia that they were no. supplying. It was the whole bloody allied forces yeah. that they were supplying. So it's kind of, it's an interesting one that that's been very much swept under the mm. rug. Along with so many other parts of our history. Just of women's keeps... contributions to the war or all in general, history in general. Just yeah. In general. Yeah. 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 Just keep sweeping it all <laughs> under the rug. All under the rug it goes. Mm-hmm. But after this, Bandler returned to Sydney. And by this time, Bandler was sort of growing more and more politically minded. And she was also growing artistically. So the first political and artistic melding that she became involved in was actually a dance troupe, which was... Oh, uh, wow. I know. Didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) And it was run by a woman called Margaret Walker, who was influential in the foundation of a few different artistic companies and legacies in New South Wales. And Bandler joined up at about the time that Margaret Walker was developing a dance that was specifically choreographed to address issues around discrimination against Indigenous Australians. No way. Yes. Really? Yes. Okay, absolutely. we're in the 40s, right? Yeah, well, so we're just moving towards the end of the war. So, yeah, Whoa. we're kind of moving towards the end of the 40s now. And she wanted to take this to the World Festival of Youth and Students for Peace that was going to be held in Berlin in, well, 1951. Okay, so just moving Uh out of the 40s now into the early 50s. And, of course, there was a lot of this sort of stuff happening after the war, a lot of movements for peace, obviously, a lot of movements for this idea of bringing the world together through Mm. art and through peace. And so this particular festival, Bandler actually went along to as one of the dancers in the troupe. So she headed off to Europe, she headed off to Berlin, and then the tour also took her through, and the troupe obviously, through many parts of what was then the USSR. Mm-hmm. So she got to see a lot of Eastern Europe yeah. as well as a lot of Western Europe as well. And, of course, this is only, you know, six years after the war has mm. ended. Mm. And in her travels she also visited the Dachau concentration camp. Oh, shit, and wow. six years after the war had ended. Wow. Could you? I mean, that must have been incredibly formative and influential. I can absolutely. only imagine. Because I mean, I think about how affected and moved I was at every mm-hmm. sort of, you know, at Auschwitz, at, yeah. at Birkenau one and two, at every place I visited that's had anything to do with mm-hmm. that, and mm-hmm. that's 
all these fucking years later, yeah. right? So you could imagine how affecting it would have been for her yeah. six years after this had come to an end. You know, she herself said that a lot of the time she felt like she was still walking over dead bodies. Oh, you know? fuck me, Jesus. And that in so many of the places that she went through, she still had in her mind the idea that there were still bodies under the rubble. You know? I mean, there was, wasn't there? I mean, it was... Hardly it, any time had passed. And that's and the thing, so it's, it's much living in, memory as yes. opposed to, for us particularly sitting here, you know, of course there are still people around who it is living memory, but it does make a difference. Yeah, because so many of the people she would have interacted with had mm. lived through it personally. Mm. They'd been mm. there and it was still fresh. It was still a very, very fresh wound on so many of the nations and so many of the people that she interacted with. And, of course, this only continued to compound her yeah. desire to work towards human rights and to work towards doing as much good in the world as she possibly could mm. to end discrimination and to end racial and ethnic violence. So this just compounded her knowledge of what it was that she wanted to do. So also interestingly, before she'd headed off to Europe, she'd met a chap and after her return from her travels, she happened to run into this same chap again. And that chap, I'm just going to keep saying chap because chap. that's the word well, I've chosen. Well, it's the 50s, it's a chap. It's, it's a chap, chap. yep. Yeah. And that chap... Happened to be oh, a, chap. a chap. I'm going to stop saying that. <laughs> he happened to be a man by the name of Hans Bandler. Bandler. No I know. Oh, my God. Now Sorry. we're talking about <laughs> Faith Bandler, so I reckon it's pretty obvious. I'm going to make a little guess here, Alicia. I'm going to say that the two fell in love. Correct. And got married. They did. Now, interestingly, after everything I've just said about her travels through Europe, Hans Bandler was actually a Jewish refugee from Vienna. <gasps> wow. And he, yeah, and he had spent time in a Nazi labour camp during the war and afterwards had found his way to Australia. So how's that for wow? all of that coming together into one? Yeah. So I guess that probably for her really solidified that sense of social justice and that desire to want to be an activist and strive for you know, yes. creating equality and reform and etc. Precisely, because this is yet another significant person in her life who yeah. has been persecuted for their ethnicity, right? Yeah. So it's only yeah. going to compound this for her. So the two bonded over music and films and documentaries and they, yes, struck up <laughs> a romance and they were married in 1952. That's a well-written romance, though, because in 1951 she was still in Europe, right? I mean, yes, but so they, they had... met before. Yes, that's so right. they met, but like they weren't like a thing, right? When no. they just like, oh hi, hey, hi. how you doing? Hey, yeah, but it's going? still the 50s. I mean, you know, oh. people got yeah. married pretty quickly. It's they not like did. today when you are with when someone it takes ten years. for ten years <laughs> and you keep saying, "Honey, maybe." <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> There's no story there, I assume. <laughs> None at all. No None personal. All. No. 
reference no, notes no. being made. Anyway, back to Bandler's story. So yeah. because of so much of these, if so many of these influences in her life, she continued to grow interested in political change and she continued to become involved more and more heavily in different causes and campaigns. She also knew and was heavily influenced by a woman called Jessie Street, who was a suffragist and human rights activist. And Jessie Street, she had a bit of a name for herself as well, but I'll come back to her in a little bit. So, of course, one of the campaigns that Bandler was becoming more and more passionate about was the treatment of Australia's First Nations peoples. So... In 1956, she met another very influential woman who would become a huge sort of driving force in her life. And this was a woman who you might have heard of. I think she's possibly one of our more sort of famous Aboriginal Australians. And her name was Pearl Gibbs. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Now, Gibbs had already been making waves as early as the 1930s. She was the daughter of an Aboriginal woman of the Ngemba and Marawari language and a white station worker. So she very much grew up between the white world of her Mm. father and the predominantly Irish station workers of where they lived and the Ngemba and Marawari world of her mother. So she sort of learnt how to move between these two Mm. worlds. Mm -hmm. She became sort of quite adept at communicating in two sort of very different ways, really. Mm. And she was very influential in being able to sort of bring white people around to the causes that she fought for. She was influential. Yeah. And since of so course, just like good at it, like known for yeah, being just really like quite good persuasive. At it. Precisely. Mm. And since, of course, you know, the white people were the ones making the rules, is a pretty it's a handy nifty tool. Skill. Yeah. Very nifty, nifty skill. Very nifty skill to have. <laughs> so as I said, in the 1930s, she came to prominence advocating for an end to quote-unquote domestic service for Aboriginal Which women. Which is, again, another one of the disguised – well, I say disguised, but it's, of course, not really disguised, but one of these words that people use to hide the fact that really it was slavery, it was indentured it was. servitude. Yeah, it was tantamount to slavery. Yeah. And, of course, when I say Ab- Aboriginal women, it was mainly girls – Young, yes. young, young women. girls who'd been taken from their families. Precisely. And also as part of this was her work to draw attention to and to fight for an end to what was honestly gross sexual exploitation of these same <sighs> girls and women. And this was a huge part of her work. Mm. And Pearl Gibbs deserves her own episode and we will... Mm-hmm probably give her her own episode in the future. So I won't go too far into the work that she did, but it is important to know and to contextualise just how Mm -hmm. important this woman's work was and just how important her influence was going to be on Bandler as well. Because Pearl Gibbs had been working for a very, very long time to change conditions specifically for Aboriginal women But by the 1950s, she was looking to close the gap between all people in Australia. So she'd broadened that sort of framework that she'd been looking at previously. So along with Gibbs and fellow activists such as Grace Bardsley and Burke Roves, Bandler and this group of activists founded what was known as the Aboriginal Australian Fellowship. And their goal was to basically advance civil rights for Aboriginal Australians. Mm -hmm. 
Now. Okay. Now. Right. Right. So, 1950s Australia. Now, (laughs) this is going to be, yeah, how to contextualise this. So, I feel like our oofs kind of contextualise it enough, (laughs) do they not? Do we need to say anything more? 1950s Australia. (laughs) That's all we need to know. (laughs) You don't want to go there. No, you don't. You don't. You don't want to be there. Sorry, please go on. But for context, you need the context, right? So, for context, so First Nations Australians, didn't really have any rights. Yeah, very brief Australian history. It was January the 1st, 1901, that the Australian Constitution took effect and Australia mm. became the Commonwealth of Australia. A federated so, nation. Yes, yeah, so autonomously sort of ruled country mm. but still within that English Commonwealth. And what did that change for Indigenous Australians? It changed a lot but it also didn't change much at all. It's, mm. it's an interesting one. So previously they'd been seen as the property of the British government, essentially. But now with the Australian constitution, they're a little bit of an anomaly because under the laws of the new Australian government, they weren't recognised as Australian citizens. They weren't counted on the census Mm. and they Mm. weren't given the same rights as other Australian citizens had because they weren't Australian citizens. They weren't considered Australian citizens. So this meant that, of course, everything they did was heavily policed and the rules that applied to them were governed on a state-by-state basis Mm. because there were no federal laws, right? So there was no sort of national laws set in place. Well, up until Federation in 1901, you mean? Or after? No, not after. After. Even after there was still Uh, not governed by federal law. That's correct. So even after this time, it was still a state-by-state basis which meant that most Indigenous Australians fell under the jurisdiction of something really sort of helpful sounding like the Aboriginal Welfare Board, but of mm. course not very well free in focus. And it meant things like simply moving across state borders could totally change what yeah. you could and couldn't do. So in one state, you might be able to move around freely to visit family, but as soon as you crossed over the border into another state, you'd need to go to the police department Mm. to gain permission to go visit your aunt or your uncle or to even move freely in the state if you moved over the border into Queensland you'd probably just get arrested straight away so it was a state-by-state scenario no federal sort of laws that were cohesive or made any sort of sense but here's a really interesting thing okay about the Australian constitution that I don't think many people realise but is super important to also how we contextualise the referendum that's to come and how that's also possibly been a little bit misremembered too, I think, in our sort of Australian zeitgeist. But in many places in Australia prior to 1901, other than Queensland and Western Australia, some Indigenous peoples already had the right to vote. Okay. So by some, I mean predominantly men, Except for, of course, in South Australia, because we're progressive as always, where in 1895, all South Australian women, including Indigenous women, Mm. won the right to vote. Which is really quite incredible for a number of reasons, because we were the second in the world to grant women the vote. And I'm... After New Zealand. After New Zealand. Does that make us the first or the second as well in the world to grant women of colour and First Nations women the right to vote? I don't know. Surely if we're the second in the world to grant women the right to vote and it includes Indigenous women, it must be up there for First Nations women. It would have to be. We'd have to check. But it's pretty damn close. 
Wow. And so then to think contextually that some other states didn't give the same rights to everybody until that 1967 referendum. Well, and also to think that so many of those rights were stripped away. Yes, so they didn't stay consistent, right, because as soon as we became a federated nation in 1901, the state laws no longer held. Everything changed. Everything changed, right? Because that constitution revoked all of those Mm. rights. And after 1901, it actually gets quite murky because it does chop and change depending on the states and it does change over the ensuing years. For example, after the Second World War, Indigenous men could vote if they'd been enrolled to fight, if they had fought in the war, they were allowed to vote. Over time, the right to vote was clawed back in all states but Western Australia and Queensland. It wasn't necessarily compulsory, which I'm sorry to say to all countries where voting is voluntary, (laughs) but compulsory voting is actually really kind of fucking important. (laughs) For democracy? Yeah. For democracy. (laughs) Then you don't have issues of voter suppression or any of that nonsense. No, and having the quote-unquote freedom to choose not to be engaged in your country's politics is actually just a sneaky fucking way of keeping you yeah, out that's exactly of being involved right. in your country's <laughs> exactly. politics. So that voting becomes something that only the elite have the time and the leisure mm. to do. So that only Especially the if you hold your federal elections on a state. Tuesday. <sighs> sorry. Yeah, okay, sorry. Go on. <laughs> anyway, so that's my rant as to why compulsory voting's actually a really good Yay, thing. Yay, voting. Moving on from that. <laughs> So having the right to vote for some Indigenous people in some places still didn't mean that Indigenous people were on the same footing as Australian citizens, of course. So regardless of how those laws chopped and changed over time, they were still by and large not seen as anywhere near Australian citizens or they simply weren't considered at all. Many workers, so this is right through until the 50s, you know, many workers, particularly stockmen, still weren't being paid for their work or if they were being paid, they would only receive sort of a portion of Mm. their payment. Often they were paid in rations of food rather than money. So, you know, this kind of policed their financial freedom to decide mm. what they, how they could even engage in the economic life and, of the and country look, around them. Again, this is an issue that continues to come up when we have these same kinds of paternalistic policies. And so when I say paternalistic policies, this mm. is what largely governed Indigenous Australians at this time was this sort of belief that they were not capable of taking care of themselves and that's where we get those protection boards coming in to, mm. you know, like, oh, we know mm-hmm. what's good for them so we're going to, you know, even though, of course, their well-being was not really what was at the forefront. But anyway, my point is we still have these sort of paternalistic policies and in things like welfare cards we continue to see this sort of economic suppression of many people because they're considered to be not responsible enough to make their own economic decisions and therefore the government gives them welfare cards that can only be used on certain things instead of actually giving them welfare money with which to have economic freedom. Precisely. And And this is still the legacy of these policies that have been around since the start of last century. So at This particular time in history, it also meant that things like who you can marry were policed, 
whether or not you could own property, of course, was policed, uh, whether or not you could be the legal guardian of your own child, yeah. of course, yeah. was another enormous part of this whole dark part of our history. And, of course, as I mentioned as well, you know, whether or not you could vote depending mm. on which state you resided in and where that state was at in their history of voting. So what did Gibbs and Bandler and the Aboriginal Australian Fellowship want? Well, what were they campaigning what they for? Want? Let's go back to them. Yes, let's do it. What were they, what were they doing <laughs> in 1967? Well, actually prior to 1967, So Alicia? this was in the 50s. We're still in mm-hmm. the 50s, right? So Pearl Gibbs herself... She wanted to demolish the Aboriginal Welfare Board. Good that was job. her main yes, aim, right? Because she's like, to get rid of fuck that. your welfare. That is not you, – what you're doing is not for our welfare. You guys go fuck yourselves That's and your right. paternalistic policies yep. founded on social Darwinism. Blech. Correct. She had actually sat on the board previously as a representative, which is yeah, interesting. Right. So she had the insider knowledge. Yeah, that it was bullshit. Yeah. And she was the first woman – Indigenous or otherwise, to sit on the board as well. So this is how influential Pearl Gibbs was. But because of that, her first-hand experience, she knew it had to Mm. go, right? Mm. So the fellowship decided that what they wanted was a referendum, right, to vote on whether or not Indigenous Australians should be recognised in the Constitution as citizens with all of the rights granted to other citizens. And this is where Jessie Street who I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, the suffragist from earlier, where she comes back in because she became basically a patron for the fellowship and it was Street who drafted up the first petition and so the campaigning began. Now, Gibbs, because of her background, knew how to tap into the hearts and minds of the working class people, right? And, I mean, they're the people who are most likely to listen because they're the people who sort of feel most oppressed themselves as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of tapping into the workers' unions. They tapped into the workers' unions for wharfies and for seamen and these kinds of people got behind the campaign because they could see that there was justice in this idea, right? And that's not to pretend, of course, that everyone was a saviour or a hero, but the tide was beginning to turn in the broader and predominantly white Australian conscious, right? Mm -hmm. This was actually something now television had come in. There had been documentaries that had exposed some of the living conditions in different communities, documentaries that had exposed some of the enormous gaps in care, Mm some of the enormous lapses of government because of the advent of television, which was in Australia, was in 1956. Finally, a lot of this information was reaching the lay person out there who for the first time was actually paying attention yeah, and to could the fact see and that I think that that makes a huge difference precisely could actually see it and it wasn't just words on a yeah. page it's not it an was... abstract concept anymore it's something that's real precisely so this did start to fuel the fire mm. behind this idea that you know this referendum was the way to yeah, go yeah. Remember, though, that this work started in 1957. Yeah. And while the campaign did slowly gain momentum, it did take another 10 years until the referendum itself finally Referendums happened. do tend to take a very long time of campaigning to come about. I think because they, they represent such an enormous – because it's actually really easy to lose a referendum, you know. Yeah, And so precisely. you have and to be – you don't want to yeah, do that. Yeah, you have to be really careful about how you – 
go about it. Yeah. And Bandler started to become one of the very familiar faces Mm. of this campaign for the referendum. She became a very familiar face at rallies and meetings. She had a very easy and free way of public speaking. You can find a lot of her public speaking still online. You can listen to her speak. And she was the kind of figure that commanded respect and attention. Probably all that time in the performing arts. Yes. Well, how handy. How handy the performing arts are. (laughs) Oh, no, just on that, somebody recently, I don't even know where it was, but I was reading somebody's thing that was like, oh, I wish in high school that, you know, in high school I did PE and I did maths, but I wish there'd been a course I could have done to learn how to communicate as a human being. Oh, gee, do you? And I was like, oh, you mean like drama? (laughs) Oh, anyway. Or or even English, really. Yeah, sorry. The arts kids are at it again. Those drama nerds. We were those drama nerds. We yeah. didn't fund us. Learn We're anything important, useful, right? We wouldn't fucking not. <laughs> not a thing. Look at us not being useful members of society. Fund us. <laughs> fund the fucking humanities. That's anyway, what we're Patreon for. No, I'm joking. I mean, uh, Patreon's <laughs> wonderful and we love you it, are, but uh, it not shouldn't joking, need though. to exist. Anyway, please go on. And as I mentioned, of course, television was this yeah. new kid on the block and she was beginning to be interviewed on different television shows and she was really very much becoming, you know, if you're on television, yeah. obviously, television That's mainstream, you're man. You're in everybody's important. living rooms. And this is the time when there's only like what, like three channels as well, you know? It's not like you've got competing demands for your attention like we do these days. It's like you turn on the television (laughs) and Faith Bandler is there and you don't have any choices but to watch Faith Bandler because what the fuck else are you going to watch? That's right. You can't just turn on your Netflix or like through your your 20 other channels. No, it's not going to happen. 20, Alicia, what what planet do you live on? (laughs) 7,100 billion. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, me, me and my little old set-top box in the other room. We just like the television. Anyway, so Bandler keeps working over the next 10 years basically and she also becomes the General Secretary for another council known as the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders, although, of course, that language is outdated yeah. today. She organised many of the hundreds of public meetings and further petitions that eventually, with growing public support, did lead to the organisation of a referendum in 1967. That's a big year on a lot of fronts. It is. 1967 was the year that brought in just the kind of dramatic social change that we really it's difficult to wrap your head around, although actually not because I think perhaps it's we're not. living through another one of them. But like 1967 was fucking massive, man. It changed it everybody's was. way of thinking. It was one of those pivotal years that is a foundational fucking world shattering year. Yeah, the last few years of the 60s, 67, 68, 69, yeah. really some of the biggest turning mm. points in mm. modern history mm-hmm. without a doubt. And here in Australia, Harold Holt was our Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, old Holty. Does Holtie. anyone know why he's famous? Can anyone yes, out there Lauren, guess Lauren. why Harold Holt is famous? Do you want to tell us? Lauren, why, why is Harold Holt so famous? Because Lauren, why? one day yeah. Mr. Holt decided to go for a delightful <laughs> swim in the ocean and he never returned. 
He disappeared into the sea. Our prime minister, our acting (laughs) prime, the the prime minister walked into the ocean for a swim, never to be seen again. Like quite, I mean, sadly, I'm sure for his family, he drowned. We assume. We don't know. He might have been abducted by aliens. Something happened to him. He never came back. And there's a pool named after him. Sorry. There's a pool named after him. The Harold Holt pool. That's not in good That's, taste, but it's kind of funny. No, it's not in good taste, really, <laughs> is it? No. Well, you're right. You're precisely right. He disappeared, presumed drowned, but his body was never found. And conspiracy theories do actually fucking abound about <laughs> Harold Holt. That he faked his own death, that he was assassinated by the CIA. My favourite is that because he was in the ocean. He got taken by the mer people? That he was actually... He was a fish man. He was collected by a Chinese submarine. Oh. So he could defect to China. Okay. Because that's what happens. Why would he do that? He was the prime minister. He had all the Australian power. Nobody knows, Lauren. It's a conspiracy theory. It doesn't have to make sense. He wasn't even a particularly controversial prime minister. <laughs> He's no, not famous not really. for anything other than disappearing. <laughs> but it's... Uh, I'm I sure love you it. have I a love point. a good conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. For old Holt. And do I? I don't know. Actually, I think I just wanted to talk about Harold Holt. <laughs> but speaking of conspiracy theories, actually, it should be noted that Bandler was also a person of interest for ASIO for pretty much most of her <gasps> activist life. Well, activists do tend to draw the attention of secret service agencies. That's right. And so ASIO, for those who don't know, is the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. Apparently, they monitored her, monitored her for over 30 years. Wow. When she began her activism and entered into public life and into the public eye, ASIO, of course, were going to take note. And I quote, this is a quote, please, this is Mm -hmm. definitely in quotation marks, initially perplexed as to whether she was of Aboriginal, Polynesian or Negro descent, Mm. the agency reached the conclusion in 1952 that Ms Bandler was not a full-blooded white and that the colour of her skin caused her to swing towards the peace movement. What? Now, how, offen- what? how offensive what is that? <laughs> fuck? So many varying levels of offensive. Holy shit. There. ASIO. ASIO, good Thanks. job, guys. They're probably listening right now. <laughs> Thanks, ASIO of the 50s for your fucking <laughs> top-notch Excellent job. racism. Yeah. Top-notch racism there. But anyway, so conspiracy theories aside, Harold Holt aside, because, you know, <laughs> I really, there really was a point about there wasn't. <laughs> is it just no, there wasn't. it happened in the late 60s? Is that the only... Well, it's just because he was in charge at, at the, the time that the referendum... So he is relevant yeah, to the right. story. So, he was the Prime Minister during the time of the referendum. Yes, okay. and it allowed us to talk about how he disappeared. <laughs> anyway, but this is the thing, right? So I think that the 1967 re- referendum has kind of gone down in our Australian history and conscience in this way that's a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that people are fully aware of what it was really about. And I think people tend to conflate it with the idea that Indigenous Australians were given the right to vote at this referendum. But as I mentioned, most, in fact, actually all states had already given Indigenous Australians the right to vote by now. WA had finally come to the party in 1962 and Queensland had oh. finally come to the party in 1965. Were Queensland last, Alicia? Lauren, <laughs> don't be mean to our friends in Queensland. Friends? Um, Sorry. <laughs> but, yes, they were. They were last okay, not to surprised. come to the party. And so really the referendum is actually about citizenship, isn't it? 
It's Precisely. about actually yeah. recognizing our First yeah. Nations people, the people who were here for at least 60,000 years of living <laughs> mm-hmm. culture are people and are Australian. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So there were actually two parts to this referendum because if you're going to hold a referendum, you may as well squash yeah, get two, a que- couple of two questions into it. Mm-hmm. And the first part doesn't get much press because it's a bit boring and that was actually just about increasing the number of members in the House of Representatives without necessarily increasing the number of senators, but blah, 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 who really cares? It's not what anyone's here for. <laughs> and that was actually defeated with an overwhelming no vote. Just oh, there so you go. go. <laughs> but what really mattered, mm. of course, was this second part of the question. And the question itself asked, and it was a bit of a confusing question, I have to say, do you approve the proposed law for the alteration of the Constitution entitled an act to alter the Constitution so as to admit certain words relating to the people of the Aboriginal race in any state and so the Aboriginals are to be counted in reckoning the population? Wow. That was the question. That is very wordy. It took so much campaigning from Bandler and crew to actually make clear to people yeah, yeah, yeah. what this what was fuck about. is that? Yeah. So... The actual campaign, the yes campaign leading up to this referendum was as much about explaining to yep. people what the fucking thing was that they were voting on as much as yeah, it was about of course it is. reassuring them to vote yes. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's confusing. Yeah. But the basic translation is, as you said, it's about citizenship. So do you approve them being counted as Australian mm. citizens mm-hmm. on the census? Therefore, in theory entitling them to the same rights as other Australian citizens, right? This is that idea of them counted in reckoning the population. Yep, okay. And do you approve the alteration of clauses in the constitution that specifically mm. highlight Indigenous Australians for special and restrictive laws, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So there's still sort of two parts to this question, you know. it's mm. Do we see them as citizens and do we also want to change the way that they are ruled mm i.e. those state-by-state laws now become federal national laws. Yeah, because I think something that is actually important, again, for international listeners to know is that the only way you can make a change to the Constitution of Australia is through a public referendum and it has to be a majority yes vote. Yes. And in 1967 it was an overwhelming Yes vote to this question. I really love that it was an overwhelming yes as well, especially because 1967, let's be honest, okay, over in the States you've got the civil rights movement, you have the hippie movement. Like we said, this is a huge time of great social upheaval, but a lot of that hadn't trickled heaps into Australia yet. It took a few years for it to get here. Obviously, we have the work of people like Bandler, as you were saying, but the kind of great sweeping public mentality changes that Mm. happened in the US took a while to hit our shores. Mm. And so the fact that this happened in 1967, I think relatively speaking, it's actually really quite remarkable It is in a lot of ways, unfortunately, yeah. because you'd like to think that people weren't that racist in 1967, but the truth is they were. Yeah. Very and largely. it's amazing to think that it was a yes vote with close to 91% mm. 
Mm-hmm. Voting yes. 91%. Mm. And I mean, in our last referendum on marriage equality, that only returned well, like 61%. Just, yes. Vote. It was a plebiscite, technically, not a. Sorry, plebiscite. But yes. Sorry, <laughs> plebiscite. It's a bit of a difference. Not kind no, of. you're quite right. You're quite right. But still, that was a 61% yes vote. Yeah. So to think that in 1967, 91%. 91%. As I said, I did say this before, but it is famously difficult to win a referendum. Like, it is a huge challenge to get enough of the public to want mm. to change the constitution. It does require an issue that is very big <laughs> and it requires yeah. a lot of campaigning because people yep. just don't like change. They definitely do not. <laughs> but of course, you know, the legacy of that referendum has been less than utopian, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a landslide win. It was amazing. It was, you know, for Bandler and for the other activists who'd worked so hard for it, of course, you know, it was a moment of such rejoicing to know that they had come to this point and that Australia had come to this sort of turning point. But, of course, it didn't fix problems. No, of course not, because that's just a change to the Constitution doesn't necessarily mean a change to that public mentality, which is kind of what I meant when I was like, it's actually really surprising because it didn't yeah. bring with it waves of great social change in people's no. attitudes towards Indigenous people. And also in terms of not just attitudes but in terms of the laws that it did change as well because essentially, as I said, the first part of that question was about, you know, now Indigenous Australians are ruled under federal laws instead of state laws. So it made laws national, easier to understand, of course, but it still meant that the government was in charge of making those laws yeah. for Indigenous people. You know, so still essentially not the same rights as other Australians, right? This still is inequality mm-hmm. because there's still individual laws being made for Indigenous Australians. And as we know, Indigenous children continue to be taken from their families mm. well mm-hmm. beyond this date, <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. under those same quote-unquote protectionist and assimilation policies. So it didn't fix the sort of systematic problems in governance Mm. and I guess there were certainly upsides to the referendum obviously but downsides as well I mean one of the upsides of the referendum was that it did make huge changes to things like access to healthcare and education which of course were things that were previously either not at all offered to Indigenous Australians or that were highly policed and it did pave the way for the later lands rights movements, Mm. reconciliation, native title, you know, for all of those sorts of causes that would end up being fought in the 70s, the 90s, of course, the work that continues towards equality today. Today. yeah. And that has never stopped. It it did also sort of have this huge effect on beginning to shift that mentality Mm. in the white population towards just who our Indigenous peoples were. And it did make headway into that sort of national consciousness about identity. Yeah. And this was part of the conversation that it did begin to change. This is another sort of pro that came out of not just the referendum itself but that whole 10-year period leading up to the Mm -hmm. referendum is that it was asking questions of Australians about what is an Australian identity Mm -hmm. Who are we Mm -hmm. as a nation? 
and what does it mean to be Australian? And these are questions that, of course, we still ask ourselves yeah. today. Because, I mean, timing-wise, this is also coming at the end of things like the White Australia policy where Correct. we also have large waves of post-war immigration from areas mm-hmm. around the world that hadn't been allowed to emigrate to Australia before. So the Australian population itself was becoming far more multicultural, was yep. no longer just Anglo-Saxon white you know, British people who were settling here, but people from, you know, Southern Europe, which were not seen the same way then. And people from Eastern Europe and people from Southeast Asia, particularly as you go into the seventies and post Vietnam Mm. War. So yeah, those questions of identity were massive at this point in time. Yeah. And as I said, the referendum was really a sort of a kickstart moment for a lot of Australians Mm. to actually reflect on what that meant. And a lot of that sort of work, that questioning around Australian identity began very much with this work around the referendum. Mm. Now, after the referendum, there was also, and, you know, you mentioned sort of what was happening in the US, for example, and there was an increasing sort of influence that was now coming over to Australia, especially as well from the separatist black power movement that was happening in the US. And this was influencing in a lot of ways this idea that only Indigenous Australians should be leading the movement for change gained traction, right? This kind Mm -hmm. of similar similar idea to that separatist sort of movement that was happening in the US. And it gained traction in the federal council that Bandler had been working on for all of those very long years. And by 1970, a motion was passed to restrict membership of the executive and voting rights for the federal council to Indigenous members only. And this caused a split in the organisation and Bandler and other non-Indigenous members sort of started to become somewhat ostracised from Mm. the movement. Now, rather than being jaded by this, Bandler always maintained that she'd never become involved in the campaign with the expectation that she should be rewarded or thanked or acknowledged Mm -hmm. as some kind of saviour for Indigenous people, right? As I said, she wasn't Indigenous. So it made sense that she should no longer sit on the council. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't looking to be honoured or anything along those lines. But also one of the other points that Bandler herself made about her involvement in the cause in the first place was that for a lot of Indigenous people, the situation was simply that they were too busy trying to survive to have the time to fight for political justice anyway, you know? And that's true of so many people in so many places, Mm. in so many different parts of history. But I mean, when you're busy trying to put food on the table, it's not very practical to march off to go to a rally, you know, which is exactly why everyone needs to be involved in change because, Mm. and the more so people who have the time and money and leisure to do it, not because these are the people who should be taking control no i was just going to say there's an important difference though when it comes to leadership yeah but what it is to say is that if there's heavy lifting to be done then people with the privilege and power and time and money to do the heavy lifting should be prepared to do some of that heavy lifting. as you said with Adler, without the expectation of reward and without the expectation of acknowledgement and without the expectation of leadership yeah so i think that this for bandler she wasn't Indigenous. She was of South Sea Islander descent, but she was relatively well positioned, well educated, and she felt that some of that responsibility of the heavy lifting was hers. Mm. And she didn't do it because she was looking for accolades for that work. 
she did it because she she inherently believed that all people should be equal and that's the work she wanted to work towards. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because there's kind of a completely unforeseen result of the referendum that actually launched Bandler into the sort of next and final stages of her life's Mm -hmm. journey as an activist, which was that this sort of fallout from the referendum turned her back to her own cultural roots Mm. in Vanuatu Mm -hmm. on her father's side. After the referendum, Bandler was very influenced by the fact that she saw a lot of South Sea Islanders who were the descendants of those who had been brought over in the slave trade you know, a lot of these people saw the benefits that were now being extended to Indigenous Australians in terms of healthcare and education. And some started to claim that they were Torres Strait Islanders in uh-huh. order to try to also receive those benefits. Okay. Now, these people had received plenty of racism and oppression throughout their lives. Yeah. And I don't think you can fault no. anyone f- for no. this, right? This is a really difficult part of history here and nobody was really fighting for these descendants of these people who'd come over in this slave trade right they hadn't been part of the conversation they hadn't been part just completely missed yeah completely missed and so you know a lot of these stories very anecdotal but it's also very understandable and it's part of what Mm. Bandler herself saw as putting her focus back now onto her own people Because she was worried that in doing this, you know, many South Sea Islanders would lose their real identities and that generations that came afterwards wouldn't know who they really were or they'd falsely believe Mm -hmm. that they were Mm -hmm. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders. And this was basically her motivation to go on to form what was known as the National Commission for Australian South Sea Islanders. Right. And her work here now involved petitioning for the recognition of Australian South Sea Islanders and their entitlement to receive rights as well. Yeah. Not including land rights, of course, but this was very difficult work for her because this was still at that time when so many historians were still maintaining that blackbirding was actually voluntary labour or indentured yeah. servitude, yeah. which of it course didn't it happen. Wasn't. It's fine. Everybody, yeah. they wanted to be there. Everyone was happy with it. Yeah. So this was really difficult work for Bandler. And she basically went on to devote the rest of her life to working towards this particular cause. Now... All of her activist work meant that in 1976 she was awarded an MBE, which is a medal of the Order of the British Empire, Mm -hmm. but she refused to accept (gasps) it from, quote, an empire that had kidnapped and enslaved Oh, shit. Yeah, that's a way to stick it to them, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it was also at this time that she started writing and she wrote two books on the history of the referendum, the 1967 referendum, she wrote two books as well about her own family history, among other things. She travelled at this time to Vanuatu as well, to her father's home village, and this inspired her to write the history of her father mm-hmm. and of those who'd been victim to this blackbirding trade. You know, this inspired her to write these histories down. She was awarded an AM, which is an Order of Australia, in 1984, and she did accept okay. that award. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... That was in recognition of her service towards Indigenous welfare and Indigenous rights. She went on to receive multiple awards and recognitions in her lifetime, despite the fact that she never really wanted them, as I said. 
She was even presented an award by Nelson Mandela. Really? Yeah, who uh, presented her with an award on behalf of the Sydney Peace Foundation in 2000. So wow. That's pretty impressive. She finally passed away in 2015 at the ripe old age of 96. Yeah, that's... And she was given a state funeral. That's amazing. 96, that is such a good run. Such a good run. And a state and funeral yeah. is quite an honour, but state absolutely funeral. deserved. Yeah. So important was her life and work in helping to shape Australia and the helping to shape our constitution. Yeah. Yeah, so she had such a varied focus for her work in the end. Yeah. All of it, of course, geared towards human rights, all of it geared towards equality, but you don't bother to think about anybody else's rights until your own rights Mm. are tested or threatened, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas with Bandler, it's interesting to think that she spent so long advocating for the rights of other people before she... Got to this point in her life and where she like, turned oh, around wait. <laughs> to look at her own yeah, yeah. her own cultural history and to turn around and to look at well, actually, what's what is my cultural heritage and how does that fit into the Australian story? Yeah, I've spent so much time focusing on Indigenous rights. Where do the rights of my predecessors where do the yep. rights of my ancestors fit into this melting pot <laughs> of discrimination and oppression and slavery where does it fit yeah and the fact that it took her to that latter part of her life to sort of turn around and switch that gaze it's a really interesting trajectory to it go is on yeah it's, it's actually it's, really like you said it's quite remarkable that she saw herself last and yeah. put so many others before herself and before her own yeah. culture. Yeah. And it took us that journey to finally come back to her own roots and to explore her own rights in yeah. that way. So a fascinating woman, a fascinating life. You can find interviews with her on the interwebs. There's a great interview with her that was done I must have been back in the 90s for a show called Australian Biography where you can hear her sort of telling you about her life in her own words. Which we recommend, of course. Yes, It is of course. always best to hear people speaking in their own voices. Precisely. And she's also just a really lovely woman to listen to speak. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I know that sounds strange. Obviously, I've been watching a lot of her rallies and speeches that I can find online, the ones that still exist. And, you know, because, as I said, she was really rallying at the advent of television, fortunately, there is quite a lot of her around. And she is a very compelling speaker. Like you can see why people were moved by her and why people were brought to the causes that she wanted to spearhead because she just does have that kind of commanding presence that a good activist has. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, it's so necessary for that charisma and that like energy Mm. and you know, yeah, charisma, that's the word, mm. yeah. And I think she had charisma in Bucket loads tons of charisma. Bucket loads. So Absolutely. I'm sure that everybody can find those on the internet, but, of course, we will link. I'm assuming you will give us some links in the show notes and on the blog. Sure. If you want of to, to listen to some of those, some more. I'm a good academic. I'll give you my bibliography, <laughs> of course. So thank you for taking this to another activist. I think that this is really the time to be thinking about these activist stories and the way that they have shaped history and shaped, you know, the way that we 
be and see in the world because there's so many activists who are leading the charge right now and it's exciting Mm. to see what's happening as much as it is distressing that it takes so much awfulness to spur these things on but it is really empowering to see the way that people rally you know around these causes and the kinds of leaders who step up to take Mm. charge people like Bandler Mm. so yeah thank you for sharing her with us no worries and I think it's also timely just to turn a gaze back to ourselves here in Australia as well obviously and to look a little bit of our own Mm. history Uh, in regards to a very dark history indeed Indeed, so the next time a prime minister tries to tell you that we don't have a history of slavery you can say actually go just so you know (laughs) (laughs) we We have quite a complicated Mm -hmm. history of slavery Mm -hmm. as it turns Mm -hmm. out so um in the meantime of course there's all those episodes there. There's so many that of you them. can listen. There's so many Go of them that you can listen to. And we have also just released our latest Patreon episode, of course. So for as little as two dollars a month, you can hear all about the Dahomey Warriors, who were the king's militia, basically all female militia. So yep. yeah, check that out if you want to hear some more stories about us warrior women. Yeah, and who doesn't? And also this month, uh, we will be. Donating our proceeds from Patreon to a couple of different causes that we believe in very, very strongly. One of them is an Australian cause. Free Her by Sisters Inside, if you want to check out those. They campaign for the release of those in prison for unpaid fines, majority of whom are Indigenous single mothers. And the other campaign that we'll also be donating to is Dignity and Power Now, which is an American organisation run out of California that supports the communities and families of those who are incarcerated. So if you join up with us at Patreon this month, then that is where your money will be going to at the moment. We wish we had a way of setting up a one-off payment, Mm. but we don't at the moment. (laughs) We encourage you to go find those yourself if you would like to donate. Correct. (laughs) So if you'd like to just simply donate directly to those causes, go ahead and do it. You do not need to go through us as a little man (laughs) for that. In any way, shape, or form. It's not a trick. (laughs) It's not a trick. It's totally not a trick. You do not have to sign up to us to donate to those causes. That is not what we're saying at all. Anyway, but if you would like to support us directly in other ways, you can also do that. You can buy DB Women merchandise at our Etsy store. And if you don't have any money, that's cool. We understand. You can, of course, write us a review. One of those five stars on Apple Podcasts would be fab. And, of course, as always, we have to say a very big thank you to India Hui for the music, to Brenda Davies for the sound, and to Dan, our executive producer. That's all from us. We hope you have a good two weeks, and we'll be back soon. See you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.